Welcome to Let's Talk Land, a weekly land education talk show devoted to learning about land and farms, buying and selling, and ownership, especially for real estate agents and realtors. Learn from the expert, guys. This is free land education. Hi, my name's Lou Jewell. I'm an accredited land consultant along with my co-host, Teresa Martin. We serve western Piedmont, North Carolina, and southern Virginia. Just give us a shout. We'll help us out. All of our shows are dedicated to Realtors Land Institute staff and members. Our national website is www.rliland.com, rliland.com. Now, I want you to listen to me. If you're interested in buying, investing in land, or selling your property, go to that website because we're a national part of the National Association of Realtors. We have about 1,700 members national. Our Designation is accredited land consultant, which I'm proud to be one. And there's about 585 of us because we know how to play the game. We'll save you money if you are buying. And if you're selling, we'll make you a lot more. So go to the website, www.rli.com. Hey, we'd like to thank our sponsor, landhub.com, buying or selling land. Landhub is the place to be. Our guest is Dr. Ray Massey. Welcome. Mr. Massey. Thank you. And we have a guest host, Sonia Howe, with Geo Ranch. And Sonia, I'm going to let you introduce your guest. You're our guest host today. And I'll back out and help you do the breaks. So turn it over to you, Sonia. That sounds great. Thank you, Lou. Yes, I'm really looking forward to introducing Dr. Massey um, to land brokers, anyone Buying or selling or leasing land, as you know, location intelligence is key. And when we ran across Dr. Massey's Ag Site Assessment Tool and saw that how site-specific it was and, and how much it could provide, we definitely wanted to introduce him to you all and let him tell you and share a little bit more about that Ag Site Assessment Tool. And so... First of all, let's go ahead and Dr. Massey, thanks for joining us today. And I'd love for you to start with how you got to the university, how you got to the University of Missouri and your background and what brought you to create this tool. Okay, yes, thank you, uh, Sonia. So I've been at the University of Missouri now for 27 years and I was brought here to really address risk management. And in the course of doing that, I got involved in uh, environmental risk management, really. And so I was looking at what uncertainties are farmers facing that need to be addressed. And I do that a lot with chemical problems, manure applications, uh, just marketing issues. So risk management was my background. I see. But uh, when the, when the climate change started to happen, we, I started looking at weather, which is a little different than climate, but I, I was looking at weather and how weather affects decisions farmers are making. And uh, then as I started doing that, I got a, a project with the Environmental Protection Agency to look at how weather uh, affects runoff. And in the process of that, I really was intrigued because whenever I talked with an environmental group, they looked at farmers as the, the evil people that were creating lots of environmental problems. And 
when I talked with farmers, they were always saying, we're doing everything exactly right. I don't know what they're talking about. So there was a great disconnect. And because of that, I said, you know, I need to help farmers understand what environmentalists are looking at and help environmentalists look at what farmers are facing. And the result was this, or one of the results was this tool called AgSite that just drew attention to the environmental sensitivities of land. And over time, it's been increased, not just to environmental issues, but uh, a lot of different sensitivities that exist on land. Uh, and it, it just so happened that here at the University of Missouri, we had one of the best uh, ArcGIS programs that was going on. ArcGIS is a, a web a web-based uh, mapping system, and they had a ton of data already online that they were able to access, and so it was not that difficult for them to create this ag site report. Now, I say it was not that difficult. I could not do it. They had to do it for me, but uh, it, it's just amazing how much data is already online, and we've just been accessing that. So that's how ag site got developed. Project that initially started with the EPA and looking at risk management. Yes, and, and Dr. Massey, I noticed that you have quite a background in agriculture. You mentioned you grew up in Clovis, New Mexico. Is that right? Yes, I did. So yeah. uh, I was on a small farm there in Clovis, New Mexico. Did a lot of uh, actually alfalfa. My dad was a custom alfalfa man. So we cut and bale alfalfa. Yeah, I see that you you know you have a background, uh, a bachelor's in animal science, and then of course agricultural economics, and uh, your PhD you got at Oklahoma State. So it it looks like you've been you know in some of well I can see how that all led to your you know your midwestern location now. I've been so. moving east as I as I go along. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing that I would really love to, to talk about is that ag site assessment, especially, um, you know, how site-specific it is, thanks to ArcGIS and location intelligence, water, wildlife, climate, and uh, just other areas of interest. And one thing that we will talk about at the very end is, is carbon, because that, that is a very, very critical climate or critical topic right now among farmers and ranchers and as land brokers and agents we want to be able to you know guide our clients in the best possible way in that area but one thing that um, you mentioned I'd love to hear a case study um, on maybe on how someone used the ag site assessment because I know that you mentioned it can not only do some of those things that you've already talked about but it can help um, buyers and leasers, less, well, lessors and well, landowners and right. leasing ranchers or farmers explore some new production alternatives, maybe learn more about the land before purchases, and it can even help support lending and the, the lending and real estate appraisal process. Would you mind kind of talking about some of those assets in your tool? Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, this was really just an educational tool. It, would, it was where farmers could find out what was an environmental sensitivity on their land and begin to uh, manage it with that in mind. But whenever you put out a tool, 
you start to get uh, phone calls or emails from people. And there were several farmers that are using it. They, they love it. But what turned out to be the most common phone call that I would get was from bankers. And bankers would be approached by somebody to buy a piece of land, and they would want to do a couple of things. First, they wanted to make sure that the appraiser went out to the right piece of land. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they would get on AgSite, and they just zoom in on the, the, the map, because it, it starts out with a map of the U.S. and uh, an aerial photograph. And so they would zoom in on that. Uh, they would outline the field that they were thinking about loaning money on and ask the appraiser to go out there and appraise that particular piece of land. But because they could give him a report, because this does generate a, about a three-page report, it would give the appraiser an idea of what to be looking for. Uh, so it was just a head start for him. But they'd also send out perhaps one of their loan officers to go out and look for other environmentally sensitivities, make, make sure that they hadn't filled up the gully with a bunch of washers and dryers and things of that nature that could have come back and uh, be an issue because they knew that there was a gully there, so they said, well, let's go look at it. So, again, it was intended for farmers to use to find out what's important, but bankers have used it a tremendous amount. And then I find farmers using it for things I never expected them to to do. It, it gives them their soils, so they love to just get on there, get a soils map, and begin to use that. I've, I've had a farmer who wanted to build a facility, you know, a, a barn. Uh, well, it, it gives you the the hundred year floodplain or the 25-year floodplain, so you'd say, well, stay out of that. But again, with the soils map, it would give all of the background detail about whether this soil was good for, for putting on a, a lagoon or for putting up a structure and what was going to be needed for it. So uh, it's become more of a business tool than an environmental tool, but I still like it from the environmental perspective. And one thing that I <clears throat> I would like to ask you a little bit about is, you know, some of those, well, in the Ag Site, um, in the Ag Site tool, you've got, like, geography, slope and landscape, demographics, environmental concerns, land use, um, climate. Um, well, I would really like to find out a little bit more about um, the water and wildlife, I guess that's part of the environmental concerns area. Is that right? Right. Uh, and again, this probably affects the eastern half of the United States more, but uh, you know, I, you, you mentioned I was raised in New Mexico. There's not very many streams in New Mexico and yeah. <laughs> uh, things of that nature. But here in Missouri and parts east, um, you cannot have a field almost that does not have a stream that goes through it. And from an environmental perspective, a stream is uh, important. Um, and so what we did is we said, all right, the GIS is there. You draw a boundary around any piece of land that you're interested in. And it measured out how many feet of streams that you had. Uh, and it, we also have ponds that says, okay, here's how many water bodies 
and what you know whether the water body is a lake, a palm, a, a pond, uh, a swamp, uh, and then again from an environmental perspective, uh, wetlands are really uh, sensitive, and so it, it identified every wetland and where it was at. Uh, and real quick, one story on this. Uh, for a wetland, you're not allowed to do some types of construction, at least in Missouri, uh, over a, a wetland. So it's got to remain as a wetland. And uh, I had a farmer call me up, and he was going to put on a center pivot. But in order to put on the center pivot, he wanted to do some, some land grading, land work. And he looked at the ag site map, and it identified a wetland. And he says, there's no wetland there. And I said, well, I'm, I don't know if there's a wetland or not, but as far as the government is concerned, there is a wetland there. And you can go and ask the Army Corps of Engineers to give you a, a, a designation of whether there's a wetland. They'll come out and look at it. But if you were to build something on it right now, uh, you could be in violation of destroying wetlands. Uh, so go ahead and get that information or get that designation from the uh, Army Corps of Engineers now that it, there's no wetland uh, mm -hmm. because as far as they're concerned there is and the interesting thing about all this GIS data is uh, a lot of it is computer generated meaning they'll say okay this type of soil with this type of slope this type of topography uh, there should be a wetland there it may not actually be there but they just hypothesize that there's one there and so all the data is not accurate but most of it is uh, and where it's not accurate it gives you an idea of what the the government would think is there but it's not mm -hmm. I see well and you know I, I know that your information here thanks to GIS and location intelligence is very site specific but when we talked about um, wildlife you mentioned that only county data is shared. Is that right? Or you had to go as deep as no. information from the county? Tell us a little no, bit about that. Before you guys do that, I'm going to do a little oh. break if that's okay. Our guest today is Dr. Raymond Massey, and our guest host is uh, Sonia Howe. This is Let's Talk Land. We'd like to thank our sponsor, LandHub.com. Are you looking to buy or sell land? LandHub.com previews thousands of properties nationwide. All right, Ray, where we left off, we were starting to talk a little bit about wildlife and the Ag Site Assessment Site. Please uh, go ahead and tell us a little more about that. Okay, so real quick, I'm going to just back up a little bit, Sonia, because you're talking a lot about tables, you know, the demographics, the hydrologic summary, and now wildlife. Mm -hmm. um, for people that have never used Ag Site, what happens is you go to agsite.missouri.edu, and when you... It says, do you want to start an ag site assessment? You push the button, and it brings up an aerial image of the United States. And you can zoom in on a piece of land that you are interested in, whether it's one that you own, one you're wanting to buy, or just your neighbors if you want. <laughs> uh, but you zoom in on it, and then it allows you to draw the boundaries of that land. Uh, so just put some boundary marks around it. Click one button that says report. And it comes up with a two or three page report. That's probably a three or four page report to tell you the truth. It has a lot of tables on it. 
So it talks about what piece of land, you know, what's the geographic summary, what are the demographics, how many people live within one mile or five miles, hydrologic summary, how many streams and water bodies are there. But within each one of those tables, it has a button where you can click on a map. And so if I were worried about uh, just, let's say, uh, a floodplain, I click on the map next to the floodplain table, and it would bring up that piece of land that I've outlined, and it would draw the floodplain on there so you'd know exactly where the floodplain actually is. Uh, if I am on the soils table and click the map, it's going to bring up the same piece of land, but instead of the outline of the floodplains, it's going to draw the outline of all the different soil types that exist on my land. So that map is really helpful, and people enjoy using it. I followed along, and I opened up the report. That was pretty easy. It's great. Hopefully it is easy. It's supposed to be very easy uh, because you could get this information without going to AgSite. It's just that it won't all be in one location. Uh, so, so the organization is really the, the benefit of this site. Uh, all of the data that it uses are free, open source data that is available to anybody that knows how to use GIS. Not very many people do, so we've made it easy to just locate your farm, draw a boundary around it, push a button, and you're done. Uh, yeah. But you and asked you, the question. Oh, yeah, go ahead. go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it started with Missouri, and then you were able to grow it so that it basically provides data for the nation, correct? Nationwide. That's correct. Like I said, I was... Amazing. Uh, the initial funding for this was for the state of Missouri, but there were a lot of people that said, I wish that we had this for our state. And I said, well, you've got all the data for your state. You just have to create it. And, uh, eventually, it became obvious it would be easier for us to create it for the whole nation than it would be for 50 states to create it for their, their state. What is, what is the, I mentioned, though, go ahead. What is the website so people can follow along? Unless you're driving, please don't. Yeah. yeah. Ag, it's called agsite.missouri.edu. So that's A G S I T E dot M I S S O U R I dot edu. Wow, that's pretty uh, easy. And you know, the edu gives it, uh, gives you confidence that it is a, a site that doesn't have any bugs in it. It's been uh, curated or curated so that. We know that it's safe to go to, uh, but um, so go to agsite.missouri.edu. Say yes, I want to make a report. Zoom in on the piece of land you want. By the way, I always say zoom in on the piece of land. You can put in your zip code or your city, and it'll zoom you over to that location. You can even put in your address. I mean, if you've got a rural route address, put that address in, and it'll zoom you right to that farm. Uh, I tend to just look at, zoom in on it from the, the state or the nation as a whole. But uh, once you get the report, you can save it uh, as a PDF or, or print it uh, and give it to your banker, put it in your own records, uh, use it in any way you want. It would be a great marketing tool for a listing, Teresa. Oh, I love it. Mm -hmm. That's great. Huh? Definitely. 
I was wondering the same thing because I saw it was Axite.Missouri. Right. And, I, and so I'm glad that he's clarified that it's nationwide. That's awesome. Yes, so it does have Missouri.edu in it, but it is for the whole, I should say, for the contiguous 48 states. And uh, it just is hosted here at the University of Missouri. Yeah, it's, it's great information. Okay. And so now going back to your question, though, Sonia, okay. about endangered species being yeah. on a county level. So all of the data that's used in ag site is a very fine or high-resolution data. So uh, we can find out just if you just had 20 feet of stream going across the corner of your land, it would identify that 20 feet of stream. If you have just a one-tenth of an acre wetland, it would identify that one-tenth of an acre wetland. But when it comes to endangered species, it does not identify anything on your piece of land. Uh, it only says that in the county where your land is, there is an endangered species. And that's actually a fun story because I can get this high-resolution data for soils, for streams, for wetlands, for so many things. But when I go to the endangered species list, which is uh, by the Fish and Wildlife Service, I said, hey, I want to know where the endangered species are. If you know that it's in my county, well, what what township, what range, wh where's it at? And uh, they said, no, we do not give that information away because we don't want people disturbing the habitat for that endangered species. Uh, and so the Fish and Wildlife Service actually do have a map of every sighting of endangered species that they have but they have somehow been able to not release that information. They just do it on a county basis. So uh, I, it's really, again, funny stories about how this works, is people are out without very much of a str uh, water on their land at all, but they'll show an endangered species of a pallet sturgeon here in, in Missouri. And they go, I don't have an pallet sturgeon anywhere on my land. The river is 10 miles away. And we'll go, well, the river is in the county that you're in, and so pallet sturgeon is listed as endangered species for that land because it's by county, not by the high resolution that everything else is. Interesting. I thought maybe it might be because uh, certain things are migratory, so they move around, so to say they're here, <laughs> but now they're there. You no. Know, that's another good point. Endangered species, some of them are migratory, uh, but if even if they were to rest in your county for just a couple of days before they moved on, your county would de be designated as an habitat for endangered species. And the Endangered Species Act really does talk about habitat just a ton. And uh, so the concern is that where the endangered species lives or may live, they do not want that habitat destroyed. They want to keep it uh, where the, the species will live there, even if for a short period of time. Interesting. Well, and I might uh, one other thing, Lou, is your or not, Lou, Sonia? 
can come up real quick. So on the endangered species, I'm looking at mine for, for my county. Uh, it says the gray bat is an endangered species. If I click on gray bat, it will take me to the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, page on gray bats, and it will tell me where they live, what they eat, what they do, and uh, what they look like so that I can learn about the endangered species. And the same thing on uh, soils. If I click on the soils, it says that I've got an Armstrong loam. I can click on that and it'll tell me everything about an Armstrong loam soil. Uh, so there's a lot of other buttons on the report than just the map, but most people like the map the most. Yeah, and speaking of soils, I would like to talk a little bit about that. And I know the NRCS has soils maps as well, but mm -hmm. but it, like you said, yours is just within an environment where we can have so much other data. How does your your well? That's probably where you get your soil information, is it? Isn't it from the NRCS? Actually, it is. We do get uh, our soils information from the NRCS. Like I said, all of this is publicly available information. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, at the bottom of every table, we give the source. And you may appreciate this more than farmers do, but frequently when you're doing legal work, knowing what the source of the information was is very important. So it says what the source was and when, when it was accessed. So I'm looking at my soils data right now, and it says the source is the USDA NRCS Sergo database accessed in October of 2019. Uh, and if somebody were to say, hey, but I have a soils map that was for 2022, I'd say, well, you've got a, a more updated soils map than we do. But the one that we have access to for this particular ag site location is uh, 2019. So that would be important and, if you're a litigant, right? I mean, for an attorney to, oh, God, it'd be invaluable, yes, wouldn't it? A lot of these, again, uh, it, it gets used for a lot of things I did not expect it to yeah, be really. for. But uh, if somebody is involved in some type of a lit uh, litigant situation, a legal situation, just having that source information is critical for them. They can't just say, I got this map from somewhere. They have to know where. And so all of that's all provided in the report. Teresa, this is exciting, huh? Is. I wish I could look at the site. I don't have my phone with me. Well, well <laughs> you got some homework to do. Yes, I do. Well, I'm. Oh, go ahead. I, I, I heard her say, I don't have my phone with me. <laughs> this yes. does work on a phone, but not very well. Yeah, exactly. oh, okay. it, works, it, it works great on like an iPad or a, a laptop or a desktop. You can get it on the phone. But it's just so small, the screen is so small that it, it, it doesn't do it justice, does it? No. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, I will look at it tonight. Homework. Yes. Well, and this will kind of lead into some of our conversations about carbon, but there has been so much talk, speaking of soils, about degradation over the last decades and um, about soil quality. And I noticed in your soil section, there's also even a crop productivity index and some great assistance programs for conservation and stewardship. Would you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, sure. So again, 
when I or when the USDA NRCS really puts out a soils uh, map or, and designates that you have this type of soil, they give you physical, chemical, uh, crop production. Uh, they give you so much information. I mean, the when you click on the little map unit symbol and go to it, it'll be another three pages of information about that soil. And you go, how could somebody study a piece of dirt that intently? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it does have the productivity index that would help you decide, is this really the best place to grow corn or to grow rice? Uh, and it would actually tell you what is the most typical grain or crop grown on there. So I'm looking at mine again. It says small grains is grown on part of it. Corn would be grown on the rest of it. Uh, And all of that is just from the NRCS, which is part of the USDA. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that, that analysis is being done with infrared, like they do uh, planets and stuff, and they can tell the different different chemicals, different uh, gases and minerals? You think that's part of that process to get that um, in depth? I don't. I don't think that's happening on the soils map right yet. They, okay. They, they definitely are using uh, satellite imagery. Right. Uh, and particularly for finding out what grows on it, I can go right now and look at a piece of land from five years ago and find out what was growing on that piece of land uh, because I know where to go looking for that. Uh, it's not on this report, but that's how much data is out there. The USDA actually has a thing called CropScape, and CropScape will tell me what was planted on any piece of land for the last 15 years uh, by year. It's just amazing how much data is out there. So our guest today is Dr. Raymond Massey. This is Let's Talk Land. We'd like to thank our sponsor, <laughs> LandHub.com. LandHub, sell your land, land of your dreams. Okay, guys. Sonia, are you going to ask a question? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were going to lead us in, Lou. (laughs) No. I apologize. Uh, Here we go. Okay. All right. Let's go ahead and continue um, with Dr. Raymond Massey from the University of Missouri. We were talking about soils, and obviously that's a hot topic with regenerative farming and ranching really coming to the forefront and carbon. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, what are some of your thoughts on the, the new carbon market? Um, well, the new carbon market is new, that, and that's always interesting when you have a new market uh, because new markets don't have the rules set out yet, and they are, there's just a lot of transition that's going on, and we're seeing that with carbon. So uh, I would liken it to organic markets 40 years ago. Uh, there was a question of really what is organic, what's not organic. And then about 15 years ago, the USDA took it over and said, this is organic. Uh, so right now, with regenerative agriculture, there's a lot of people say this is what it is, that's what it is. With carbon sequestration in the climate market, they're saying this is good or this is good or not good. Uh, There's a lot of excitement, a lot of opportunity, uh, but there's also a lot of uncertainty out there. And so uh, I talk on it quite a bit, and my 
my major takeaway when I'm done talking with folks about uh, carbon markets is just to go into it with your eyes open, perhaps test the water a little bit rather than jump in with both feet. Yeah, the last report I saw was there are 58 different entities in the market in some form or fashion, um, and that is that is a lot of jumping in. <laughs> yeah, so, and I might mention that there are probably not quite that many involved in the agricultural market, though there yeah. are a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, there's probably eight or maybe nine that are quite prevalent in the agricultural market that are looking for... Uh, carbon sequestration or or maybe uh, methane capture. If you go into forestry, you're going to add another <coughs> 10 or 15 uh, that are there. But uh, it just depends on whether you're looking at forestry, cropland, or livestock production. Uh, all three of those have a carbon market potential, but they have a different potential and different uh, players in the market right now. Yeah, and I, I think part of that 58 were were the actual brokers, carbon brokers as well, that mm -hmm. uh, help make up the market. And then, of course, there are the, you know, there's the analytics, which is, you know, sometimes a, a different department as well. It seems to be across quite a wide spectrum. It actually is. So. In, in agriculture, we have what are called normally called project developers, and they're going to try and talk to 100 farmers that each have a 1,000 acres or, or things of that nature and aggregate this carbon so that it can be put into a market. Uh, but you've got the, the farmer who hopefully uh, captures methane or sequesters carbon or something of that nature selling it to a project developer who's going to have somebody come and verify it. And so you've got another group called verifiers. And then once it's verified, it actually goes into a registry, which is the bank, essentially. The registry says, yes, this guy has uh, a carb this much carbon for sale. And then eventually it does get sold, and so it goes from one registry to the next. You know, you, it, it moves. But it's not just farmers directly giving carbon or selling carbon to somebody that wants to buy it. It's going to go through a developer, a verifier, a registry, and finally to the person that wants to buy it. Dr. Massey, uh, yeah, just, for, yeah. just for the listening audience, Teresa and I, over the last couple of years, have done several carbon shows. Uh, we was one, I don't remember the podcast, but they're on there, a company that um, is established, in, and they were out of Houston, Texas, I believe, Teresa, and it was a professor at Rice University and a marketing guy. Uh, had a European name, and they were actually one of the first companies that were doing the actual verification and carving. Uh, it's to me, to me, it kind of reminds me of wetland mitigation, where you go through mm -hmm. the process with uh, getting the Corps of Engineers. It can't just be a particular surveyor. You have to go through the Corps. It has to be certified. Then it goes into eventually to a mitigation bank, which could be an individual or a group or an entity. And then the uh, developers, as they destroy wetlands, there's a ratio. So it sounds like it's kind of following that same thing. And the other thing, just and I'll get off, but uh, we also did one on, on timber. Uh, and it seems to me, Teresa, wasn't it, that uh, like on a planted forestry, uh, plantation, uh, pine, part, uh, sorry, plant by, plant pine plantation, <laughs> uh, normally you harvest about mm, no more than 30 years normally. 
But if you allow it to grow for 60 years, you're not disturbing the carbon, and therefore that can mm -hmm. become a carbon credit. So it's not just ag. Uh, it's mm -hmm. pasture land. It's also timberland, is my understanding. Yes, timberland, pastureland, cropland, all of them have different registries or developers, project developers that are targeting those particular things. And I might just mention, since you got here in the North Carolina where there's a lot of timber, probably the most uh, developed and established uh, projects for carbon sales are within the timber, timber industry. Interesting. Uh, as opposed to in cropland. Uh, cropland is just a little bit more new and uncertain. Right. And a lot of that has to be with till and no-till and, uh, you know. The, the yeah. Right. Yeah, so the two major activities that you can do to try and sequester carbon and regenerate your soil are planting cover crops and no-till production. So right. no-till, it just means I'm not going to till the soil. That means I'm not going to bring that carbon up out of the, the soil to where it's exposed to the air and it will turn into CO2. Uh, and when you plant a cover crop, what you're doing is you're actually planting something that you're going to leave on the ground and it just creates more carbon mass that will go into the soil and that's putting carbon into the soil. So sequestering it for generations, hopefully. And they're saying another way is the regenerative branching, where it's more of a mob grazing or rotational grazing and letting, you know, livestock or some sort of livestock, even poultry, I guess, it has been proven as a, as a method of restoring soil. Have you, how do you feel about that, or have you heard much about that? Or uh, well, I've heard quite a bit about rotational grazing, or which would be a regenerative process, where instead of letting the cows out on your 100 acres, and I'm using a small number, I know from Texas you're talking about 1,000, but in New Mexico or in Missouri here, we're looking at a 100-acre patch, and I could let them graze the 100 acres, but, you know, cows are about like humans. They're lazy, and they're going to go over this patch over here. They're going to spend a whole lot of time uh, underneath the tree or over by a, a, a stream. And so when you fence it off to where they go to this 20 acres, and then a week later they go to the next 20 acres, and a week later they go to the next 20 acres, it, they're really intent on that 20 acres because got a whole lot of cows on that 20 it's it stocked too heavily but it's mm -hmm. only stocked for one week or two weeks and then you move it to the next uh, portion and it just forces them to uh, to graze the, the land more evenly it, 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 it the research has shown that it tends to help the soil out when you do that rather than just let them run free yeah and one thing that the carbon markets, one thing that I've heard some complain about is the greenwashing is the way they term it. Like if an Exxon wants to buy so many carbon credits, why don't they just invest that in perhaps their own their own restoration program of sorts? Um, right. I, I've heard those complaints. How do you feel about that or have you um, well, had any discussions about that? Yes. Uh, at this point in time, in the United States, unless you're in California and Oregon and Washington or the 11 northeast states,
no state. There is no mandatory reduction in carbon uh, for any industry. Now, in those particular states, again, at the West Coast and then the Northeast, uh, they say uh, if you are an electric generation facility, you have to reduce your carbon. Uh, but anywhere else, it's all voluntary. And so a lot of these companies are saying, hey, I want to be carbon neutral. And so they're paying farmers or paying somebody else to reduce their carbon so that the company itself does not have to reduce their carbon. Uh, that could be greenwashing. Uh, the amount of carbon that actually does not get into the atmosphere or is taken out of the atmosphere is affected. Uh, but it is somebody paying another person to, to do that. Uh, and some people think that's just improper. Others say, uh, create the market for me, and so mm -hmm. let me take advantage of that market. Mm -hmm. Good point. Um. Can I ask a dumb question? <laughs> oh, God, here she comes. We woke her up. Well, no, I'm sitting here, <laughs> and I'm like, I wonder if everybody knows why carbon is important and, like, do you want to reduce it or do you want to, I mean, because he said reducing your carbon. So mm -hmm. we, we will, is that the thing we want to do is reduce it? Because I thought we wanted to increase it. I'm confused. <laughs> so when, when you hear people talk about climate change or global warming or one of those words like that, okay. they're usually saying that the culprit is the increased carbon dioxide in our atmosphere over the last 150 years. Uh, it really started in 1850s when they start counting the change. Uh, so I guess that's 170 years. Uh, but um, maybe more. Anyway. Well, I'm going to tell so you, what you just said makes me understand a whole lot. Has <laughs> gone into the atmosphere has increased. And that carbon in the atmosphere in the form of CO2 actually captures heat from the sun. If we didn't have carbon in our atmosphere, we'd be a frozen planet. We have to have some carbon dioxide running around in the atmosphere because it captures heat. But we've gone uh, up too high, and they say we're capturing too much heat. And so what we normally say is we want to decrease the amount of carbon in the atmosphere so that we decrease the amount of the sun's solar radiation that is captured. Now, when you talk about carbon markets and things of that nature, we call it carbon markets, but you can also be dealing with other gases. So I happen to deal more with uh, hog producers who create methane in their manure storage facilities. Uh, and methane is another greenhouse gas that captures solar radiation. And so you want to decrease the amount of methane. Uh, but we, we always talk about decreasing carbon or methane or nitrous oxide from the environment so that we do not increase the temperature of the earth. Well, I've always wanted to understand why this subject was important and that put it yeah, in. Yeah, it's a I mean, th that made it clear as day to me now. I understand. Your eyes are water. Yeah, so you've opened well, your yeah, well. <laughs> 
we, we've always talked you about it. Less of it in the atmosphere. But I never knew exactly what the importance was. But now, now that you've talked about the, w- the way that you've explained it, and we hear stuff like you know global warming all the time, it, it makes me understand what, what the purpose of it and is. And there's so many positions out there, and some of them are bogus, and some of them are real. And it's hard for the you know the, the uh, population out there to kind of grab and understand what's really going on. Who do you believe? Well, it is it's interesting uh, because a scientist, a physicist, can actually put carbon inside of a, a bottle and and do an experiment on it and find out that it does collect heat. Uh, if you were to put oxygen in that bottle it would not collect heat as much as carbon dioxide would collect heat. If you put methane in the bottle, it will collect even more heat than the carbon dioxide. So the physicist uh, doesn't have any trouble proving it collects heat. Where it becomes much more uncertain is how much heat does it collect when it's floating around in the atmosphere and all of a sudden a cloud comes and obscures the, the sun's rays or uh, a volcano erupts and the dirt gets in there, and so it becomes a system problem, and that's where all the controversy comes. So there's not really any controversy about whether it collects heat. It's just whether, how do we know how much it collects? And forest fires lend to that too, right? Forest fires, me, you know, forest, forest fires affect the atmosphere as well too. Oh yes, the forest fires are, are doing a couple of things. And, and both of them are contradictory, actually. Yeah. So when a forest fire or a forest catches on fire, it's releasing a ton, I mean tons, lots of carbon dioxide into the environment, which we would prefer that it not. We'd want to sequester it. We'd much rather have that that piece of wood as a two-by-four stud in our house than we would have it burning because when it's a two-by-four stud in my house, it's going to hold that carbon for decades, if not a century. But at the same time, the forest fire creates a cloud that keeps the, the uh, solar radiation from coming in as far in as it normally does. And so it has a cooling effect. Uh, the question now becomes which effect is greater, the cooling effect or the warming effect? And most people think that the warming effect is greater, uh, but there's still debate on that. But regardless of what you know, where you feel about the global warming or climate change debate, a market is developing. And so people that have land are saying, should I try and capture some additional income by sequestering carbon or not emitting another gas? And uh, how much money is that going to provide for me? And I've seen studies on that. It's almost like a lease uh, could be as much as two or three hundred dollars an acre. Uh, at least on the, there's a website out there that, that monitors that that you can go and it'll predict how much money you can save based on things that you do. With the two or three hundred dollars an acre, you're probably looking at forest land. Right. If you're looking at uh, cropland here in the Midwest that's growing corn and soybeans, you're probably looking at more to ten to twenty-five dollars right. an acre that you might be able to, uh, to get by practicing an activity in a way that uh, captures soil or captures carbon. Right, but it's real money, uh, and it all adds up. It's real money. 
and, and your charts. That's what I loved. Uh, Teresa and I had the privilege to preview it, but uh, Sonia and I have. The charts that you've created, I mean, you, you get down to all the, I mean, how many hours you're using a John Deere tractor and, and, your, and, your, and your taxes and your fertilizers and pesticides and your crop costs. And I mean, it, it's a total business plan uh, that just, it, it, it's mind boggling uh, the amount of information and it's all right there. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of information out there uh, that hopefully is useful to people as they're they're interacting with this. And uh, one of the questions earlier on, Sonia asked me about greenwashing. Uh, one of the issues for the market of carbon is what's called additionality, uh, meaning if I pay somebody to do something, do I actually get more carbon? Uh, and that's one of those two-edged swords again, because mm -hmm. what they want is they want people to do no-till no -till farming. No-till farming will sequester carbon. Well, about 30% of farmers already do no-till farming. They don't disc their land up. They, they plant in without tilling up the land. Uh, so should they get paid for that? And most of the markets say, no, you're already doing that, and anytime we want to pay you to do something, we want additional carbon saved. So essentially, they're, they're targeting the farmers who have been tilling uh, and saying, if you'll quit tilling, we'll pay you something. And that particular farmer has to say, well, if I quit tilling, how much does it cost me in yield? How much does it save me in fuel and they start to look at the, the cost and the benefit and how much you're going to pay me. Uh, and all the person has to do is bump them up to where the benefit exceeds the cost to where they should be willing to enter into some of these carbon markets. we got about five minutes left, guys. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, one thing that I'd like to ask uh, Dr. Massey is now that you've developed this tool, I know that uh, – you mentioned that you're also working on some other research, which I found extremely fascinating. So please share that with us. Okay. So right now I'm doing research on landowners and how they make decisions. And uh, so I'm really looking at what's called non-operating landowners or landlords, people that lease their land to somebody else. And so I've been having focus groups and doing conversations with non-operating landlords or landowners and I've, I've begun to see three different types of people that at least for educational purposes I'm seeing them as different targets there is the farmer who farmed the land for the last 30 years he knows the piece of land he knows the farming and so he when he gets into a lease arrangement he has very clear ideas of what should or should not happen but there's also the second one who is person who knows the farm but does not know farming and that may be the spouse meaning the, the farmer died and so now the spouse she knows her farm but she doesn't know really all the business activities of farming or it could be a child that inherited it and, you know grew up on the farm knows the farm but doesn't know farming they ask a very different set of questions and then the third group that I'm looking at is those that do not know the farm and do not know farming. And so it may be the second generation, you know, maybe they're 
their dad was raised on the farm, but they were raised in the city, but now they've got it. Uh, and they have just a totally different set of questions about how do I go about leasing this land. And uh, the research I'm doing is trying to help landowners make conservation-minded decisions. So how would they put it into their lease that they want the tenant to actually protect the land? Yeah, and it's pretty ironic that I had no idea that you were working on that um, when I became so fascinated with your ag site assessment. But um, I just presented about a month ago more information about those non-operating landlords uh, to the RLI group in San Antonio. And Geo Ranch, our company, is dedicated to helping with that transition and uh, because 40% of America's farm and ranch land is going to be transitioning over the next 20 years due to retiring landowners. And I had read a study that I shared with you from the American Farmland Trust about this new group. And, you know, I just I just thought it was really fascinating because uh, we're definitely looking at that as well. Our whole goal is connecting landowners with that next steward of the land and, um so I, I can't wait to work with you on that project and, and just see what, what all develops. So. And Teresa and I are looking at, uh, you know, our future, too, in the land business. And, uh, you know, and this is an area that we want to learn more and help farmers uh, and landowners and potential landowners. Uh, and hopefully we can put together some type of program uh, from A to Z, uh, from identifying it to uh, educating to showing the, uh, like, uh, Dr. Massey's done showing the uh, cost benefits and the business aspect of it. But then if they sell the farm, what do they do with the money? So uh, we've got the 1031 uh, as an example and the tenants and comet programs where the farmer can uh, go ahead and cash out because we feel like uh, we're kind of peaking at uh, upper prices and what's gone on in the last couple of years. And if there's a downturn, you know, that's going to uh, bottom out or even reduce. And it's a good time to go ahead and make that uh, decision to liquidate, but yet they want to continue farming. So you do a sell and a lease back where they sell it, they pay off their mortgage, they pay off their equipment, they've got money in hand, now they've got capital gains, what are we going to do with that? So there's investment programs, and it could be a part of the farm or all of the farm. So uh, we're looking forward to putting together an aggressive program to uh, uh, move this out into the public. And tell me overall, what are you... What are your what is your goal with the your goal with the this research that you're doing? Do you have an end result or some sort of a a tool also that you're working on, or is it just more for designing future programs? And we got about a minute left. Okay. So are you asking me that, Tanya? Oh yes, I'm sorry. Yes, Ray. Okay. So uh, what we are hoping to come up with is clauses that we can put into uh, leases that would allow the tenant to say we do, or the landowner to say this is what we expect. But we're also trying to figure out how can we nudge landowners to do what they say is important to them. They say that conservation is important, but it's not currently in their lease. Mm -hmm. so is there a way that we can nudge them along? That's, that sounds great. That's uh, we are looking forward to, you know, seeing how that all unfolds. So, 
Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Massey, and we're looking forward to uh, sharing this information and uh, working with you more in the future. Dr. Massey, how do they get in touch with you? How do they get in touch with you, Dr. Massey? Uh, if somebody needed to contact me, they could uh, email R. that's my last name, Massey, M-A-S-S-E-Y, first initial R, at Missouri.edu. Everything's at Missouri.edu around here. Yes, sir. Uh, what a great school. And Missouri's all the way spelled out. And it's not like Mississippi. <laughs> no, it's not Mississippi, and it's not just the two-letter abbreviation. It's M-I-S-S-O-U-R-I, Missouri. You got it. And your website. And course, yeah, real quick. Your web oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Lou. No, just mention the website one more time. The website is agsite.missouri.edu, and agsite is A-G-S-I-T-E dot Missouri.edu. Perfect. Sonia, how they get? Yeah, and I'm your guest host, Sonia Howell at GeoRanch.com. All right. So thank you for joining us today. Let us know how you like the show. If you have any questions or topics you'd like to suggest, we would appreciate them. All of our questions are welcome, and all of our guests may be emailed with your questions as well. This show is for the public and, most importantly, for real estate agents who do not have a source for land education. All of our shows are downloaded after this morning's show on our master website, www.letstalkland.net. .net. Also, you'll find us on Spotify and Podbean. Teresa, how do they get in touch with you? They can call me at 336-209-2937 or email me at Teresa, T-E-R-E-S-A dot mylandpro at gmail.com. And my email is lou, L-O-U, at mylandpro.com. My cell number is 336-669-1405. Hey, we'd like to thank our sponsor, landhub.com. Are you looking to buy or sell land? Landhub.com previews thousands of properties nationwide, and we appreciate their sponsorship. It's a great site. Ronnie, how they get in touch with us here at the station? Well, Lou, they can go to our website. Go to WKTE1090.com. Well, well, Lou, there we go. Oh, there you yeah, are. there we are now. <laughs> <laughs> they can go to our website. Go to WKTE1090.com, and also they can download the simple radio app. Hmm, How simple is it there, Teresa? It's pretty simple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then what do you do? And then you just type in WKTE 1090, and then it'll bring it right up and add it to your favorites. And you can listen to the station where? All yep. over the world. How about the universe? And the universe, okay. yeah. yeah. And what do we play? Happy music. That's you right. Be, you want to be happy? Happy. Everybody wants to be happy all the time. All That's the right. Time. Beats music and oldies. That's right. The only uh, kind. That's the only music there is, right? That's it. Thank you. Feel good. And I think we won some awards, haven't we? Yeah, seven years in a row being the top uh, beach and oldies radio station on the East Coast there. So mm. how about that? And you got a nice award. Yeah, the Reader's Choice for Announcer of the Year Award. For the what? The Announcer of the Re Year Award. The what? The no, Announcer no. of the Year <laughs> Award. <laughs> well, you can try it, Teresa. Nope. Come on, you can do it. Announcer of the Year. <laughs> award, award. 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 There you go. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see you next week with another show. Thank you so much for joining us this morning.